Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Greetings and welcome to episode 257 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis. My name is still Barbara. Still? Yep. Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So, even though this episode's actually coming out the Monday after Lab Day Chicago, please excuse Barb and I, for we have recorded this long before the festivities have even begun. There's nothing worse than having to get an episode out Monday and you're trying to get it done Sunday night when you're getting back from Lab Day Chicago. It is no fun. (laughs) Right. And there's nothing worse than two cases, full upper, full lower, shitty looking PFM that somebody else did for me that I've got to recontour and fix. And then about another 20 units that I have to get out before I leave at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. So one of us is a little pissy. (laughs) That one of us would not be me. (laughs) I did see three patients today. That's that's a lot. I mean, sorry. Moving on. Yeah. So unfortunately, we don't have any updates on Lab Day. You know, because we're there. As we we have, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's over by the time you hear this, but as we're speaking about it, it hasn't even started. But we can only imagine the great time we had, and of course, we want to give a big thanks to Ivaclar for allowing us to set up and record. And hopefully everybody was on social media over the weekend, checking it out, lots of pictures. But Barb and I will be back next week, as I'm sure we'll have some great stories to tell. That's correct. I will, anyways. You better. (laughs) Anything's better than the mood you're in today. (laughs) Yeah. If anyone else is having a bad day, don't listen to Barb. (laughs) Hey, I'm giggling. You got that going for you. So this week takes us back to a conversation we actually had Christmas week, where we talked to an actual doctor. An actual doctor. Well, actually a prosthodontist. That's an actual doctor. Yeah, but they're your favorite, aren't they? Oh, yeah. You love them. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Mark Nation owns Advanced Dental Solutions in Louisville, Kentucky. Because I work for Derby Dental Lab in the same town, I've had the pleasure of seeing Dr. Nation speak actually a few times. A few since we've had him on the podcast. Nice. And it's when I actually got to work with him chairside that I knew he was going to be a great guest. Dr. Nation comes on the podcast to talk about wanting to get into healthcare and why he chose dentistry. He attended the University of Louisville. I need to stop (laughs) typing Louisville if I can't say it. He attended the University of Louisville and was taught by a lot of experts in the field of occlusion and dental wear that helped him fall in love with surgery. It gets really interesting when Dr. Nation starts talking about the why so many people's teeth break down. It really opened my eyes when looking in the past when all I had to worry about was vertical clearance. Dr. Nation talks about medical conditions that cause the issues and the medical conditions that come from poorly done restorations. This conversation will blow your all-on-X minds. Oh, that was good, Elvis. Thanks, thanks, thanks. So join us as we chat with Dr. Mark Nation. If efficiency and performance are what you are looking for in a compact milling system, then the program mill drive from Ivoclar is the right choice for you. Produce precise zirconium oxide crowns and bridges, 
plus a range of PMMA materials, including the innovative iMotion material for the digital production of complete dentures. Ivaclar provides white glove delivery service, training, choice of service contracts, and their outstanding after-sales service and support, which we all know is super important. Contact your friendly Ivaclar sales representative today for lucrative promotions and to create a digital solution that's right for you. And as always, we appreciate your support of the podcast, Ivaclar. Voices from the Bench. The Interview. You just met Barb, so... There you go. Most people there make it to about 30 minutes and bail. I'm just kidding. Stop it. <laughs> We'd like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Mark Nation out of Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Louisville. And you can only imagine how I met him. Dr. Mark Nation, Prosodonis, how are you, sir? Doing great, sir. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas, indeed. We are recording this, what, three days before? Yes. Absolutely. It's in balmy negative five where I'm sitting right now. So. Oh, my God, you guys. It's 69 this morning, and now it's dropped to 60, and it's going into the 20s in Florida, which is super crazy. And I'm excited. I'm really crying for you right now. <laughs> yeah. Elvis tells me that all the time. I realize that. I'm lucky. When it says it feels like negative 33, you wonder... <laughs> how is anything alive out there exactly well dr nation let me just kind of explain to the audience how i met you so with my job with derby you were kind enough to allow a few of us to come in and watch you do a full arch surgery and from what i understand you do a ton of these things first of all thank you for allowing me to come in i've been a part of a good handful of surgeries, but never from the very beginning and having somebody explain it so well. And it was fascinating to me. And I know we talked a little bit about overdentures and just some topics kind of in between. And that's what brought us to this conversation. So I'm really anxious to get your take on kind of the laboratory's perspective of the clinical full arch procedure. But like this podcast and every other guest, we'd like to find out how you got started. So how does somebody become a prosthodontist? Oh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> so I'll give you a little bit of my background so you know where I'm coming from. So I, I grew up on a farm. And actually today is a perfect example, if you will, of why I came to where I'd be. I, I remember when I was 14 years old, I was out cutting ice in a pond, a watering pond we had on our farm to get a bunch of horses watered and cattle that we had. And as you know, the, the snot was running out of my nose and freezing in my head, yeah. you know, my feet and hands hurt. Dad had me out there at like 5.30 a.m. And he said, son, you need to go cut water for the livestock. I was like, okay, this is great. Before you catch the bus, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I, I trekked out through there. And as I was smashing my axe into the ice and the chips were hitting me in the face, I was started to think and I was like, every swing I took, I was like, I am going to do something in a temperature controlled environment. <laughs> People come to see me. 
That is very profound. Just saying. So you knew just then you were the hell out of there. Yeah, I knew. I knew farm life was not. I come from a long line of farmers, and I knew that was not what I wanted to do. But the, the, the irony of that is, I live on a farm right now. How dumb is oh, that? That's cool. Anyway. So anyway, I decided that healthcare was probably the route that I wanted to take at that time in my life. So mm. around 15, 16, I started looking at, you know, healthcare professions. And, and fortunately enough for me, my father had connections. Uh, one of his hunting friends, his son was a trauma surgeon here at the uh, University of Louisville. And he let me, this was back when they would let just anybody in a hospital. So um, uh, he let me tag along. I tagged along with a trauma surgeon for a whole summer. Uh, he basically said, if this is what you want to do, I want you to see what you got. And I learned real quick, I did not want to be a trauma surgeon either. Uh, I, like I mean, my- talk about the worst of the worst, right? Yeah. I think my dad was trying to convince me to stay on the farm. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, I uh, figured out that, you know, I, I really, I mean, I saw people die in front of me. Yeah, I was gonna Oh, say. wow. I literally was helping uh, drain someone's stomach when their aorta burst and they died right right there on the oh. table. And, and so at that point, kind of like, you know, I don't want to wanna have this. Do I want to have these hours you know, and I, I watched everyone around me and, and just the load. And I was like, you know, there's got to be something better. About the same time, I was going through uh, some issues with my bite. And fortunately enough, we, we could afford me to go see an orthodontist. Well, after some discussion and I had a severe overbite. And after a lot of talk with the orthodontist and he was able to implore an oral surgeon to help him, I didn't know at the time what was going on. So they said, well, in order to correct your bite, you know, Mr. Nation, we're going to have to break your son's jaws and move them oh and straighten the teeth out. Da, 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 da. So, so anyway, we went through with it. It was life changing for me. I had a corrected overbite. I looked different uh, in such a way that I was, it was life changing. I mean, I think I got to go on my first date after that. It was awesome. Anyway, <laughs> just, just kidding. But, but but I did look better. They uh, broke your jaw at what age? I had a Lafort, so they moved my jaw. So so they moved my maxilla such that my occlusion was much better, and I didn't have the occlusal issues that I was experiencing before. So so that was life changing for me. Yeah, I've seen pictures of those surgeries, and it literally does change your face. It does. So yeah. I get it. You know, when you said you went on your first date, like you don't realize it. Yeah. But it impacts people so severely when their jaw is like that. Absolutely. And so that was the turning point for me. I said, wait a minute, this is kind of cool. I saw this orthodontist. He works like 9 to 4.30. The oral surgeon, yeah, he's got a little bit of call, but he, you know, he he's not working. So I started looking at dentistry really hard. So from that point, I was like, you know what? This is it. You know, I, I floated horses' teeth, which in farmer and vet terms, you know, you flatten horses' teeth out so they can grind grain better. I'd done that since I was a kid. I was like, I've been doing dentistry on horses like half my life. I can do dentistry. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. So, so that was the start. So I went into college. and Plus, you noticed that they had heaters and air conditioners inside, right? I did notice that. <laughs> yeah. is, there any, is there any way? Do I have to, like, go out and break ice or <laughs> They're like, no, no, I'm not sure what you're talking about. But uh, we even let you park really close to the front door. Yeah, I don't want to do it. This is, this is kind of cool. And, you know, I was, I was looking at the lifestyle and family is very important to me. And and so dentistry seemed to be the fit, the fit that I wanted. And it, it kept me engaged. 
And then, you know, I went to undergrad and got through college. And then when I went into dental school, I was like, okay, I'm going to be an orthodontist or oral surgeon. That's what I'm going to be. Be one of two. I'm going to figure this out. Yep. And so I went into dental school and for whatever reason, because uh, all half my classmates thought I was crazy. I was like, you know, I really like occlusion and I like I like dentures and prosthetics. I, I don't know why that is. And when I was in dental school, that was 1996 through two. I graduated in 2000. Implants were just starting. Implants were something that the undergrads didn't do. I mean, the undergrads, we, we, we didn't have exposure. It was very, very minimal exposure to dental implants. But I was noticing what was being done with prosthetics and implants. And so that was intriguing to me. And, and for me, dentistry was, I was so fascinated by full mouth reconstruction. And at the time, I was just, I was like, occlusion has so much to do with this. And why does a mouth break down? I just thought that was fascinating. Yep. And so, so I started really focusing on that. And the next thing I know, you know, I'm in my junior year and I'm like, okay, I got to start making a decision what the next chapter is. And I started trying to, to go to different departments, but I, I always seemed to find my way back to the Prost department at UofL and got to kind of understand what they were doing. These guys were doing, I, I was at UofL at a very unique time. Dr. Sam Veal, who was one of the founders of the American Equilibration Society, was one of the mentors in the Prost department. Dr. Christopher Crone, who had trained under Carl Misch at Pitt, who wow. was really steeped in implants and occlusion. He was the director of grad Prost. Dr. Marion Edge, who was a classic nathologically trained prosthodontist, who, who was a protege of Niles Goucher and had done a lot of work with Brian Lang in Michigan. And you know, knew Brandomark personally. So, so these guys were all at Louisville at the same time. And I don't really think that even the school realized what they had Heck no. at one program. It was kind of an interesting time for me because I got to know those guys. And it was so crazy because I had Sam Veal. He was a proponent of long-centric and kind of a, a neutral bite. It was all about the joint and its ability to, to be able to freewheel and move. And then I had Jack Edge, who was my chairman, who was classically nathologically trained. I mean, he had us using pantographic tracers and we were getting hinge axis on joints. And it was like, you know, Sammy's over here calling Jack a Nazi and they're yelling at each other. <laughs> they're on both ends of the spectrum, you know, from an occlusal rehabilitation. Yeah, I know that. And then I had Chris, who Chris Crone, who was in the middle. And he was like, well, you know, guys, I, I think you're both kind of right. But I, I did a lot of study with Art Jenkelson. He, he was the initial LVI guy. You know, he did all the work with neurocentric and all that sort of stuff where they were doing muscle fatigues and determining, you know, rest positions of muscles. So he was all about muscles and kind of talking about that. And I was like, well, who in the heck is right? <laughs> so, so, but that was a very unique time because I got to see the three dominant occlusal re reconstructive philosophies at the same time. And I learned something. I learned that they were all right. In their own way, yep. Sometimes. Yep. And so I was like, well, what does that mean? Well, that means we haven't quite figured it all out yet. But the, the, the crazy thing about it was, and I learned a lot from it, and I kind of developed a lot of my own occlusal philosophies from there, but I learned that 
when we started putting implants in that mix, which our program had an enormous implant component that lots of things, lots of patients that we were seeing were ending up in my practice because of functional issues. I didn't treat a lot of what I call biologic breakdown cases. Most of my cases were severe wear, bruxers, things like that. And these mouths were destroyed and they were coming to us for answers. And their answer was implants because they didn't want to, you know, wear removable prosthetics. And so, you know, I was kind of thrown into the fire as far as what was going to happen and how we reconstructed these people. And I had lots of failures and I had, and this was, you got to understand, this was 2000 to 2003. And so in the, in the time frame of implants, we're still in, you know, we're still in a lot of infancy. I mean, immediate load hybrids were just starting then. We, I, I just done a few of those in residency and that was considered cutting edge and almost never heard of at that point. We were still restoring lots of cases on Branamark X hex implants. So you can imagine uh, just kind of where things all started with me. And I was kind of an oddball in my program because you know, I was really heavy into this reconstructive occlusal philosophy stuff. And I was also really steeped in implants as well. And it was interesting because I could see this all developing as an undergrad. And then I actually talked to Dr. Edge and I said, I'm going to apply to your PROS program. I think it's going to fit me the best. I said, but I have one stipulation if I come, because he really wanted me. I'd been talking to him for a while. And I said, I got to be able to do surgery. And he said, we don't do surgery in our program. The reason why is at that time in the United States, PROS programs weren't teaching surgery. And so I said, really? yeah, yeah. That, that, that's just a recent development wow. in the last several years. Prosthodontists classically did all the restorative and, and not a lot of the surgery, but I love surgery. And so, so hold on. So why, why did you love surgery? Like, what was it that kept you involved in wanting you to be a surgeon? Here's the thing, Barb, I'm a weird prosthodontist. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a weird one because I don't like lab work. Yeah. I hate lab work. And for me, I just, I like having control. Now I'm not going to surgerize every patient I see. I know my limitations surgically. Oral surgeons and periodontists are absolutely needed. And at that time, their programs and their accrediting institutions were pushing implants. And so every implant that was coming into dental school and most dental schools around the country either went to a perio department or an oral surgery department. But my argument from day one was, why are we having other people place implants when it's a restorative procedure? Shouldn't the one that's trained in restorative work be doing the surgery? Because we understand what is needed and can better position implants and place implants to, to be able to do that. Now, the digital age, you got to imagine this was back before we had, I mean, I started my first, I, I believe I did my first CBCT for implant surgery in 2001. Damn, that was early. Sure. I, used, I used the original Simplant software the first time in like 2002. So, and you can only imagine how hard that was to read and manipulate. Now it's, yeah. things have changed. I mean, people don't realize. Students today, they don't understand where this all started. But I lived through that period of time and, and where we are now, where everything was completely analog and seat of your pants to completely digital and very accurate and precise. So we, we've evolved significantly. But, but back to my story, most, you know, I, I said, I've got to be able to do surgery. And so that was a hard thing to do. 
because the politics of a dental school, the, the surgical residents get to do the surgery. And I'm like, well, I want to be able to do surgery. Prosthodontics should be a surgical residency as well. Because I knew it was coming. I knew the only way that prosthodontics could ultimately survive long-term is if surgery was part of it. So, and now you see that today. It's part of the curriculum because the ACP finally woke up and said, you know, we really need to allow our docs, our specialists to be able to control the case. He doesn't mind me talking about it now because he's long retired, but we did a lot of, it was on the books, but it was very quiet. So <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like you were one hell of an early adapter and you pushed that. I did. I actually had a, a very graceful, I'm not going to mention any names, but he was a periodontist in the school. He loved to fish. Yeah. And my family had a lot of fishing ponds. And I said, look, I'll make you a deal. I said, you can come fish anytime you want if you'll help me do some surgeries. That's and so we, we struck a deal and I've always been good at negotiating. So I, I, the endo department let me use their surgical suits to do my surgery. And so we kind of kept everything out of the, my chairman was always, he was always like, what if something goes wrong? And we got to talk to the surgery department or the perio department. So don't you worry, Perillo head, we'll get through this. So, so you kept the politics out of it and kept it on the low. Exactly. I always call it the black ops surgery program. That's fantastic. Did all your surgeries take place at like four in the morning when no one else was around? And <laughs> we, we managed to find times when people were not weren't able to kind of snoop around. So. Good call. It was a huge success for me, and and I was able to learn early the difficulties of. I just find it's unique for me because. There's not, I mean, there are more surgical prosthodontists today than obviously there were, but, you know, it, it's a tricky wicket. And I know my limitations. I work with oral surgeons all the time and periodontists because I, I can't, I simply cannot master the entire discipline. I can do a lot of it. I mean, obviously Elvis came in and watched me do the full mouth, I believe. Yeah. We did. did we do a full mouth that day? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. And you didn't pass out? No, I didn't. No, Elvis was, he was on my shoulder and, and I would have passed right the hell out. (laughs) We had a maxilla fully exposed and a mandible fully exposed. I even showed him the mental nerves. So yeah, it was fascinating. I I loved it for you, Elvis. (laughs) So, you know, you said, how did I get here? I got here because I have this love of diagnosis a love of treatment planning. The thing that I like is, is why do mouths break down? And if I can at least have a handle on that, then it can help me better understand how to best restore a patient. Yeah. If I can do that service for the patient where they get something that's long lasting and and works for them, then, you know, that's a win. And prosthodontics, you know, lots of guys do lots of things. I literally get to change someone's life every week. And I don't think that any other specialty in dentistry can do that with the consistency that I do it. And so it's very rewarding. Pretty awesome. You mentioned finding out why patients' teeth break down. As lab technicians, you know, we get the work after the teeth have already broken down. What are the main causes of patients' teeth breaking down? What do you see more often? That is a perfect question, Ellis. So there are two factors that break down teeth, Okay. Yep. There are basically, there are biologic factors, okay? Mm-hmm. Biologic factors include organisms, you know, bacteria, viruses, fungus, things like that. There are, there are things that can attack the teeth biologically. And so in most instances, strep mutans is going to be 
the bacteria in question. You're going to have a patient that either has a high sugar diet or they have a dry mouth or the environment of the dental cavity is not conducive for tooth structure to live biologically. Okay. So they don't brush their teeth. Well, either, well, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. I mean, the, the thing is, is we're living in a unique time where we have a very old population. Yeah. We have a, a large demographic. The baby boomers are now in their retirement age. Mm -hmm. The next 10 years are all going to be retired. The largest generation of all time, the oldest generation of all time. Wow. And, and they all are on multiple medications. And so multiple medications mean what? Dry mouth. What does dry mouth mean? Well, we don't have good salivary flow that buffers acid, buffers yep. bases, nor does it combat bacteria as well. So all that goes crazy. So you get all this recurrent decay. So you can get breakdown and their hygiene can be good and they're still going to break down. So that is what I call a biologic reason. And that's some of the population, actually, yeah. you know, a, a big part of it. The other factor that I consider where teeth break down is functional. So functional breakdown, that's your Bruxers, that's your hyper-functioning patients. Those are the patients that I call blunt force trauma. Yeah, they beat the hell out of their teeth, right? Right, right. And, and they are the most difficult by far the most difficult. And then and then we go through a whole myriad of reasons why they do that. When I started this game, it was all about everybody was arguing about occlusion and hinge position and all those sorts of things. And that's where we had the birth of all these courses. You had, you know, you had like the Panky Institute, you had OCI, oh, you had Dalton, OBI, you had all those, yeah. and all these things. You had even Frank Spear and John Coyce. I mean, all those guys had, you know, they were doing all this stuff and teaching all these restorative, first they had the, 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 the diagnosis and then they had the restorative algorithms that they would go through to, to restore someone. And I always thought, you know, because there was always arguments, it was the same arguments I heard in residency, like everybody worked, but not all the time. So why is that? And so the biggest change for me was about, it's going on 12 or 13 years when we started to look at airway. So I think airway mm -hmm. is a huge component now, especially when it comes to hyperfunction. I, I routinely, almost weekly work with a pulmonologist, sleep medicine specialist, lots of my Bruxers. The first thing that I do is prove that they don't have apnea. Usually nine times out of 10, my severe wear case is really a sleep disturbance. Now I don't get into, I can't diagnose that. I leave that up to our medical counterparts, but then I can manage it different because I can set expectations. Because I can't cure a medical problem. Too many dentists think they can do that. And the mouth is part of the human body. And lots of times we are just seeing a dental manifestation of a medical problem. I even include dry mouth in that. And until we start looking at a more of a medical model in dentistry, we're going to continue to beat our heads against the wall with some of these bigger issues that patients come in with. But that's a that's a topic for a different day, but it's something that has to be addressed. Does, does that help answer your question a little well, bit? Well, yeah, but I'm fascinated to hear that sleep apnea correlates to bruxism. Oh, absolutely. I don't understand how that works. Usually when people have sleep apnea, they're snoring and their mouth is wide open. <laughs> that's when they get treated, right? Well, so there, there are different stages and, and there are different manifestations. So typically you get respiratory effort related arousals we call those reras not to get too technical sure yeah but there let me just make this as simple as i can physiologically 
when someone is okay, let me. I'm gonna give you. A, I'm gonna give you guys a scenario, just real quick, isn't it? Yeah, please. Yeah. So Elvis. Yep. Let's just say we're face to face, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I put my hands around your neck and squeeze on your. <laughs> now, I want to do that all the time. <laughs> if you want to, you know, supplant me, that's fine. But Elvis, I want you to think about this for a minute. As soon as myself or Barb start squeezing on your neck, what does your body physiologically do? What does it do? Tense up. Well, why does it do that? Reaction, I guess. Okay, so what is the physiologic reaction when your life is in danger? Do you know what that's called? Freaking out? I don't know. (laughs) Flight or fight, right? Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, so what do you think your body does to do that? What does it have to do physiologically to get you ready to fight or fight? Oh, adrenaline? Exactly. Now, there's other things that happen I'm not going to get too deep into, but... You typically get a dump of adrenaline and aldosterone. There's all sorts of corticosteroids that your adrenal glands dump into your system. So if I'm choking you to death, it's going to ramp you up. Your heart rate's going to increase. Your muscle tension is going to increase. You're going to be ready to do something significant, okay? So you physiologically are getting ready for that. Okay, so imagine someone sleeping in their bed and their airways cut off, and they're completely asleep. So what do you think their body is going to do subconsciously to break that cycle? Tense up. The same thing. It's the same thing. So one of the reactions that we note when these little arousals occur is we get this corticosteroid dump. You get muscle tightening, you get heart rhythmic changes, but the adrenaline, and many, many times we get tension within the muscles of mastication during that time. And we also can note that we actually can do myomonitors on the masseters and notice there's a firing of that. But the more important thing in what we're trying to understand is when patients are experiencing this multiple times a night, they're also building up cortisol and doing all sorts of other things within their body that is upregulating their entire system. So they clench through the day. Matter of fact, most people can't even produce that much force at night but they're ramped through the day. And so bruxismal habits are really 24-7. They're not just at night. Yeah. But we know that sleep disturbance, not it doesn't always have to be apnea, by the way. Sure. It can yeah. be other manifestations that are related to airway. Those things can cause these cycles. So what I try to do is say, okay, I'm just a lowly prosthodontist. <laughs> somebody's coming to me. Somebody's coming to me and saying, "Doctor Nation, I hate the way my teeth look." Well, they're looking in the mirror, and I have them look in the mirror, and I say, "Well, why do you hate the way your teeth look?" Well, they're all worn off, and da 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 da. You know, because they're all worn down or they're eroded. I'm yeah. going to say there's a high incidence of gastroesophageal reflux disorder with people with airway problems. We can go into that research later, but but that those things kind of go hand in hand. So we get acid erosion and wear at the same time. Typically, when someone's referred to me for bruxism, where they, you know, the, the thought is, well, they're just grinding their teeth away. Well, it's not that simple. We're conditioning the teeth with, in many cases, reflux, which is acid, which is solving the enamel matrix. And then they just do normal chewing or a little bit of bruxing. And that's what's getting rid of tooth structure. So, so all those things, it's just a, it's, it's a syndromic thing that all goes hand in hand. But the key to, to, for me is I need to see if I can determine if there is a medical component to that, because if I can improve the medical component, 
and downregulate all those symptomologies that are manifesting in the mouth. If I can do that, then anything that I do moving forward for that patient is going to be longer lasting and better for the patient. So the patient comes to me saying they don't like the way their teeth look. They don't understand why. They just know it doesn't look right. Well, they come to me with worn teeth or what have you, and they're asking me to replace or restore those teeth. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, let's treat the... the I can't fix something if you're just going to destroy it again just as quickly. And if we cannot find an answer on the medical side, then I have a very different conversation with my patient. It's all about expectation. Well, I know we have some manifestation. I cannot. I mean, there used to be this, what I call a fallacy of, oh, if I get the bite just right, you're going to stop bruxing. Yeah. Well... I think that's just something we lucked into a lot of times because it helped airway or it helped something else because it's so inconsistent. No one to this day can definitively say, if you do X to this patient, their occlusion will be fine the rest of their life. That's just unheard of. Yeah. But we do have information that says, if I can improve someone's airway or I can put them on a reflux medication or I can do X, Y, and Z, I can deregulate or cause fewer instances of bruxism, then that's giving me something that works on my side. It's like I I teach all my residents, every resident that I've taught in my career, I tell them, look, prosthodontics is just a game of physics. We're trying to rebuild, and engineering, we're just trying to rebuild something to hold up against whatever force is put against it. The key is, is can we figure out a way to get rid of some of that force if they're a patient that has too much. And many, 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 many times that is on the medical side of things, which we have no control over, none. But if the patient comes to you and, and, and they're asking for a solution and no one can figure out exactly why, well, then I can start telling the patient, look, here's our options. You're going to continue to brux no matter what I do. So how are we going to restore you so you can maintain this the rest of your life? Because now we're not dealing with an episodic problem. It is a chronic problem that we have to manage and mitigate for the rest of your life. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So you must have one hell of a questionnaire when they come into your office (laughs) and sit down and you go over all of their medical history so you can help diagnose and delve into the actual symptom that's medical. Well, that's why I talk every week to my medical counterparts. I think in dentistry, we isolate ourselves too much. You know, I I send patients for physicals. I send patients for sleep tests. I send patients for airway evaluations. I I bet I talk to an ENT, a pulmonologist, or a physician every week. Wow. Because because dentistry is not just dentistry. I mean, everybody thinks that dentistry is like this neat little wrapped up in a box medical division, and it's not. I mean, we're... Prosthodontists, in my opinion, are just dental orthopedics. That's what we do. And so, I mean, it's prosthetics and implants. But truly, I mean, the orthopedic surgeon is not going to do a hip replacement unless he knows that the the internist or the general physician has a patient's A1C in the right range. We have to do the same thing. And that's overlooked so many times. Hmm. We're working on a human being. We're not just working on a mouth that's connected to nothing. Right, exactly. And, and unfortunately, patients have been trained this way too. Patients think the same, well, doc, just fix this. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I love it when a patient comes in and you ask him, well, so what are your problems? Well, I broke this, I broke this, and I broke this, or this tooth's hurting, and da, da, da. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
like, what are your problems? Well, well, I, you know, I've had a lung transplant. I had cancer four years ago. And oh, by the way, my A1C was a, a, a 10 last time I had a check. They don't talk about that stuff to you. So you yeah. want to get it out of them. But an all on X is going to fix everything, right? Elvis, you've been in my office. Like 35% <laughs> of my practice is correcting cases. You know that. Oh. Wow. Yeah. You know that. You know how many all on X's I've redone? Do you know how many all on X's that I've been called into court to give depositions on? Oh my gosh. Wow. So, Seriously? Oh, yeah. And it, it's huge. I mean, I think the dental industry is in for a rude awakening because there's some things we're just not talking about that we should be talking about. Yep. Many of which are, you know, are we really picking out the right prosthetics for people, you know, when we give them a treatment plan? Because if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you go into certain clinics and you're getting a hybrid no matter what. I could argue not every patient is a good patient to have a hybrid, especially a maxillary hybrid. Maxillary hybrids are incredibly unforgiving and you have to be very disciplined in understanding, okay, what is my bone anatomy what is the aesthetic tolerance of this patient? And how is my end result going to be a hygienic restoration for the patient? Yeah. And many patients simply do not meet those criteria. You have to be very careful. You know, they'd be better suited with perhaps implants and traditional crown and bridge on implants because of certain aesthetic and or anatomic limitations. And that's overlooked all the time. That is the number one reason I redo cases. It's challenge. And, and, and you all on the lab side, I know how it goes with you all. It's like, well, hey, uh, we put these implants in and I'm ready to do a zirconia hybrid. Can y'all get me a design? And you're like, I have four millimeters of restorative space. <laughs> yeah. How do you want this to work? You know, well, it doesn't look right. Can you push the teeth up a little further? Can we put a flange? Well, if you put a flange there, you're literally going to have a toilet bowl and taglio. How are they supposed to clean that out? You know, but I see it all the time. Well, the patient doesn't want anything removable. Well, you should have planned better. You know, were they even a candidate for that? It puts you all in a very, I mean, it's something that has to be, we have to do a better job in our disciplines to instruct and guide and train and actually know when not to do certain things. It's a problem. I see a big problem with prosthetic selection in our industry and I also see a big problem in long-term implant health and maintenance where we're literally watching implants fail without any treatment. I see it all the time and it's just being overlooked and it's going to be a problem in the future and dentistry is going to have a reckoning with it, I would say in the next five to 10 years. And you're saying a lot of it's due upon restoration fit and style and then also patient ability to keep it clean, right? Right. So the, the biggest mistake I see is diagnosis. To me, the best training I ever received in dentistry when it comes to diagnosis dentally, when it comes to diagnosis from a dental parameter of aesthetics and function was complete dentures. Why is complete dentures so important? Complete dentures is so important because I get to put the pink and I get to put the white wherever I want it to be, right? Yeah. You know, I can put it anywhere I want. So if I can determine that in a case, I then have a philosophy that I either have to, to move or remove teeth to make it match the denture that I want to put in this patient's mouth. Because that's what I'm doing, whether it's attached or not. So once I can figure out where that's supposed to be, 
to meet all the aesthetic parameters, then I can work. It's always work with the end in mind. So I try in every case that I see either fixed on teeth or implants or even removable. In my mind's eye, a denture has to look like this to look great in this patient. Yeah. Now, what doesn't fit in that pattern? I got to take it away or move it to, to make that work. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the way I look at every case. Well, sometimes the problem is, and I also have to know what the lips can do, if the lips can move a whole lot. So depending on that, do I need a flange? Do I not need a flange? Because if I need a flange, we're already talking about something removable and we have to educate our patient that, look, hey, you know, we simply can't do something fixed because of your lip dynamics. Just, it won't work. You've got to have a flange because that's the only way it can be cleansable. If you want fixed, then do we have enough room to reduce bone to do that? Or do you already have enough bone that we don't even really have to do a prosthetic, if you will? We are doing, you know, an FP1. We're doing crowns on abutments. Can we engineer the gingival tissue where this looks right? Are lip dynamics appropriate for it? Are we going to have, you know, a bad aesthetic result? I mean, a hybrid is not the answer to everything. Too many practitioners think it is. Why? because they've been taught how to facilitate it. But just because you know how to facilitate it, you know, it it doesn't mean that's the right choice for the patient. You you have to pick the prosthetic that fits the patient. You don't make the patient fit the prosthetic. You you see what I'm saying? That's That's very well said. Yeah, totally agree. We see this full arts huge in our industry. Everyone talks about it. Everybody wants to do it. Everybody's doing it. Just because of, you know, the money involved. I'm going to be busy. I know you are. (laughs) I know this is going to be a political question, but why do you think docs take on these cases that they really don't understand and they just, you know, say, no, I don't, you know, it's over my head and refer to you. Like, what do you think's going on there and how do you get the word out? Well, first things first, I am, and you can ask anyone that I've ever trained, talked to or whatever. I am not someone who would ever say, oh, that has to go to a prosthodontist or it can't be done well. I would yeah, never say that. I would never say that. I never have. I do CE all over the place. But the thing I do say is you have to understand the discipline and you have to understand the options for which you have. To me, it all lies on the restorative doc. Yeah. Many, many times a GP will say, well, I saw somebody do this. I went to a CE course and this is how the case goes. Well, Mrs. Jones really wants teeth that are fixed. They then call their periodontist or their or their oral surgeon, who is their surgical specialist that they use if they don't do the surgery themselves. And then they say, okay, I, I want to get implants in to do a hybrid. That is the beginning and the end of the discussion to develop the case. And that's it. The, the lab hasn't been brought in. Then the poor surgeon or periodontist who you know have had years and years of restorative training, not... They call the lab and say, well, I'm working with so-and-so and and we're trying to set up this case. Can you guys help me? And where do we need to be in da-da-da-da-da? Well, a lot is lost in translation there. And there's not enough time sent in in looking, well, what are the lip dynamics? Where do things have to be? And the nuanced things like implant position and angle or how are we emerging the abutment? You know, can we keep everything in this design? Did we pick the right implant? Will this abutment allow us to be you know, subgingival or, or equigingival or subgingival in our emergence. By the way, you know, I only have eight millimeters here. I know I can use an eight millimeter implant. That's it. You know, are we really choosing the right thing here? Is this where we need to be? Aesthetically, what's appropriate for this patient? Or they simply, and I love this one when the, the, what I call the newbie starts a case where it's different if a patient comes in and they're completely edentulous because you can set up the case. 
But yeah. so many times they come in and they want to, you know, reach for the stars. We're going to take teeth out. If we get primary stability on our implants, we're just going to go ahead and go for it. Well, do you have any idea how many mistakes I see there? Because the surgeon doesn't understand how much reduction. They depended on a lab to, to set up the case. I mean, I hate to say it. They a lot. Labs facilitate and I hate to say this, but labs facilitate a lot of this. I know yeah, they do that a lot. Well, so, so tell me how many times the lab understands lip dynamics and where things are going to end up. We don't even get lip position. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know what your speaking space has to be. Do yeah. you know, do you understand how the patient got in this position? Like for instance, what's your long-term game plan? Well, I've got a severe bruxer here. That's why we're taking the teeth out. We're going to do zirconia over zirconia. And guess what? I'm going to have a really tight occlusion because that's what the doctor asked for. They want, you know, everything socked in and perfect. And we're going to do all that. And this patient's a full-blown Bruxer. Haven't, hasn't dealt with anything else. How long are you going to warranty your zirconia? I just want to ask you that. Is it, is it the Bruxing going to be worse because now you have harder material in a smaller space? Well, it, it can be. It depends on, are you crowding the tongue? Is it making the airway worse? In any cases, you can make the situation worse. So are you choosing, you know, what you really should be choosing? Or, and, and this is the thing, I see so many patients that come in to see me and they're like, well, it's all breaking down. I keep breaking my hybrid. You know, the, the poor dentist is now, and the lab have done three or four hybrids they've broken. And I'm looking at everything. There's not enough reduction. They, they had their occlusion such that there was that. See, patients without any teeth at all do not have proprioception. So you have to be very careful about guidance. And, and really and truly, in this situation, is there guidance? Because there really isn't feedback neurologically. So I tend to not want to put those patients quite as tight, give them a little space. But the other thing I do is I know they're a Bruxer. I'm going to tell the patient right off the bat, you know what we're going to do, Mrs. Jones? Your maxillary arch is going to be made out of zirconia supported by titanium, which is the way, you know, Elvis, that's the way I do things. Yep. And then on the lower, guess what we're going to do? We're going to make a different material on the bottom. It's going to be titanium underneath a product called PMMA over that. Now, it may look slightly different, but it'll be really close. And anyone that notices the difference, if they're that close, they don't care about your teeth. Just trust me. <laughs> So, but, but guess what? That PMMA, when you wear that down, it's going to do two things. It's going to be kind to the top, which is the more expensive and the prettier, which is what I'm going to see. And it's going to wear down. And in three years, maybe we might have to do what I call a retread. I can't help it. You can't help it. That's just part of your body. It's how you got here. And it's going to cost X amount of dollars every time we do that. But that's what you need to expect. I'm setting an expectation. Yeah. I'm setting a parameter because I know where this patient is heading because I know what I'm dealing with. The lab doesn't get any of that. And so you guys, oh, yeah, we'll do zirconia over zirconia. It looks like we have this much room and this much room and midline should be here. Here's our occlusal plane. Yeah, you should be good, doc. Let's go. And so we just recommend a night guard so we get a couple extra hundred bucks. You recommend a night guard, get a couple extra hundred bucks. Answer me this question, Elvis. Are you more powerful at night bruxing or are you more powerful during the day bruxing? The day. Exactly. Do patients wear their bite guards during the day? That was a guess. He totally No, we talked about it earlier. (laughs) But no, nobody wears those things during the day. I guess they should. I mean, mean, there are studies that show that you can only muster up about 50% of your masticatory potential during the night. Interesting. 
Wow. So, so why are we, I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, it will help. I'm not saying it doesn't help. Sure. That's at least some wear and tear that we're, that we're circumventing, but it's the day. Yeah. It's the day. It's always the day. It's in coordination and chewing. If they're a mouth breather, which again, there are all sorts of mitigating factors here. If they're a mouth breather, if you're, if you're trying to breathe and swallow through the same hole, you're very uncoordinated. <laughs> so things happen. Yeah, I busted this eating a sandwich. Well, was it a tuna fish sandwich? Because I want to make sure it was soft because that's what you should be breaking these teeth on. Mm. That has to do with consistency and, and coordination. There's all sorts of concepts and theories about what that means, but there have been studies that have shown that foods with different consistencies tend to initiate fractures and things like that. So, so those are things that have to be looked at in coordination and swallowing. All that has to do with airway, and so which a dentist has no control over. You know, we just don't. But we're doing all these big prosthetic reconstructions, and the biggest, the biggest short-sightedness we have is in many cases, we're not telling the patients that, especially if they're younger, you know, these full arch cases, you know, these patients are committing to, and I'm pretty expensive, but a lot, lots of people are less expensive than I am, but they're still spending upwards of forty, fifty thousand dollars sure. for full mouth reconstruction. And do they understand that there is a pretty good likelihood that they're going to have to dump another 10 to 15 within 10 years minimum. No, I don't think so. And these patients have leveraged no telling what just to pay for it the first time around. Yeah. I think a lot of people think they're done with dentistry once they get them. Oh yeah. For and sure. that is simply not the case. It's yeah. Just, now, and I would argue if they're a patient that had a biologic reason for tooth loss, i.e. bacteria, dry mouth, something like that, Absolutely. Those cases do better. If they're not Bruxers or hyperfunctioners or something like that, the cases will hold up better. Again, as I said earlier, force distribution. Sure. That's our game. Physics. You know, if it's a biologic issue, then those patients I feel really good about. If it's someone who come to me because they simply have chewed up their own teeth, that patient has a lifetime of chronic issues. And you have to approach those cases differently. You don't sell someone a Ferrari that cannot afford the oil changes. You just can't do it. So yeah. True. That's a great analogy. That's the big thing that I see. So as a lab, do you recommend that we ask for a sleep study result every time we do a full arch case? Do you want to continue to do business or? <laughs> yeah. True. What I would say a lab needs to do is at least give the doctor parameters and say, look, we want to work with you. We want to do a really good job, but this is the information that must be hashed out. Mm -hmm. You know, do you understand the lip dynamic? Do you understand this is how much reduction you're going to have to have for us to create a convex surface to our maxillary hybrid? Can the patient have that much reduction? What's the horizontal component? You know, where do those two central incisors need to be? There's a great uh, paper. It was actually published in the JPD in 2017 here at L. Dr. Adrian Polini, one of my residents that I worked with, and Dr. Mm -hmm. E. Morton, the chairman of the Prost department. They put together a paper, and, and it, it basically talked about lip, tooth, and ridge relationship with relation, you know, so you can help understand the patient's presentation so you understand what type of restoration to, to use. And many dentists just don't understand that. They're doing this work. And if they did, they would really change the way they think about, well, maybe this patient is better suited 
for removable restoration, or maybe this patient is better suited with a little bit of grafting or maybe some soft tissue manipulation to do fixed. That is their best option long-term. And so it's all about education. I mean, the best thing you can do as a lab technician is A, educate yourself on what those parameters are so you can talk the talk. Yeah. And then offer that information to the docs you're working with or help them get trained so they don't make these mistakes. I mean, to me, that's the key. And that's the only way we as a discipline, if you will, or or an industry concerning all of us can kind of turn this tide because right now we are pumping out. And you notice I'm not talking a lot about the mandible. If I could be a mandibulo implant adonist, I would be. That would be what I would be. Is that a thing? Someone that only works I'm with maybe a new sub Because <laughs> if I could be that, I could just do those all day long and I'd be happy as a clam and avoid all the issues. It's the maxilla that's the unforgiving canvas. And that's where I see most of the mistakes. And so understanding the parameters of the maxilla and how it dictates how you set a case up, if you're going to try to do full arch, that is what's going to help someone be a success and not have a lot of issues with their full arch cases. So you might not know the answer to that, but we do have a lot of lab techs that are listening to our podcast. Where would you recommend we go to learn about it and educate ourselves? Do you know? But other than yourself, of course. Well, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, I, I do quite a bit of CE, but there are plenty of practitioners out there. There are lots, I mean, there are lots of people in this game and lots of people that want to know what to do. I mean, I'm a big proponent of the ITI. I think the ITI is, is a great resource. They have a lot of great information. Their SAC classifications, you know, simple, advanced, complex. Understanding those algorithms and protocols are phenomenal. And I, you know, I think a a good lab technician is one who has educated themselves enough around clinical dentistry that they at least understand the parameters and know where the potholes are, if you will. And that can help a whole lot. I, I think that a lot of the major implant manufacturers like for instance, Strawman or Dense Supply or BioHorizons, you know, they can offer a lot of resources to labs to help understand those diagnostic parameters. Sphere is phenomenal, especially yeah. for GPs. I think that that is, that is a very well, Frank Spear and, and all of the faculty that he's put together, they have done a really good job of putting a product together for GPs to be able to facilitate a lot of yeah. it. You really, the devil is always in the details. In the details. And yep. it, it takes experience. And honestly, I just ask most people, if you're going to do a case, and I, I say this here locally, I'm not... You know, if I tell everyone here, look, if you want to do a, a full arch, I am all for it. But hey, get a mentor in the area that does it. And if that's an approachable person, say, hey, look, you know, some other people are wanting to do this. Look, I'm not going to stop it. All I can hope is, is that I can help those around me to understand the parameters so that I don't see the case after the fact. So if they would just come and sit down with me and we look at those diagnostic parameters and we look at what the patient presents like aesthetically and structurally, then we can start to develop a treatment plan that that is appropriate. The key is mentorship. Someone local either, you know, if it can't be local, then you go somewhere. 
like Spear or what have you to gain that mentorship or at least someone to bounce those off of clinically. Someone knows what they're doing clinically so that you can learn the pitfalls and learn how to completely avoid all those issues that we've talked about the last catastrophe. Yeah. I 100% agree. I spent 10 years telling surgeons to, we need to reduce four millimeters of bone or three millimeters of bone or whatever it was. And I would just say it like it was no big deal. And it wasn't until I was at your practice, Dr. Nation, that I actually got to see what that entailed. And I think a lot of technicians could really appreciate being able to visually see that if you can handle it, Barb. Well, it, it, but, I don't think so. it, exactly. I mean, exactly. And, and you're like, we, I know you were watching me. Alvin. I mean, you know, we, we open that up and I'm talking to him like, look, here's my God. Here's where the teeth are. So you can see I've got to go this much further. Yeah. And, and, and what did I say? I said, well, we're here. I'm going to take just an extra millimeter or so just to be good, you know, yeah. because I had it. I had it to spare in that particular case, but not every case is like that. And that's where, but you also have to have, and that's the other issue I see some surgeons, you can be too aggressive. That's for sure. Sure. A lot of practitioners, especially GPs that are getting into the surgical aspect of things, they do not have the confidence to do what they need to do, you know, and and that comes with training and experience. And and so you got to tell, show, do that's just the way, you know, the way But I think every technician that is doing full arch prosthetics should be able to at least comment on every step. Every member of the team, the surgeon, the restorative dentist, and the lab technician should be able to at least comment on every facet of what's being done. Do you have to do everything that's being done? No. But you should be able to contribute and at least understand every parameter that's necessary to get that patient where they need to be. If you don't understand that, then that's a disservice to the patient. Yep. Yeah. And also not just the technician that's doing the conversion. There are a lot of labs out there where there's somebody doing the conversion, but someone else is making the actual restorative or the guide or whatever. Everybody's got to be in sync and understand what needs to happen. Right. Exactly. Visually, audibly, all those sorts of things have to occur. Answer me this question. What healthcare discipline has the challenges that we do? And I'm going to, I'm going to preface this by whatever we do has to do a couple of things. It has to, A, look good. The patient has to be able to speak with it. Yeah. It has to be cleansable and oh, by the way, it has to crush things at <laughs> Okay, so so tell me one other modality in medicine that has to do all those things at the same time. No. Uh, None. None. Now I would argue that there are some other things that are I would consider more important, like what a cardiothoracic surgeon does, because the system doesn't work. But when we're asking for something, what the job is to be done. The job of full mouth rehab, especially with implants, there is nothing more technically complicated because of what it has to do all at the same time. It's a great point. You think about people that do like heart surgery. It doesn't need to look good. It just needs to work. (laughs) Right. It needs to work. It's important. Don't get me wrong. But no one's ever going to see it. It's never going to affect the patient socially. And if it's functional, it works. The patient's fine. 
our stuff has to look good, crush. You got to be able to speak with it. It's got to be able to be clean and, you know, do all those things that we're asking it to do. And that requires an enormous amount of concentration and knowledge to be able to facilitate. And a lot of the times we have to make the patient look 10 years younger too. So Of course. <laughs> this, is, this is true. This is true. This is true. It's amazing. Most of my patients after I finish it, magically their hair changes too. I haven't quite figured out how I've done yeah. it. Yeah. But it happened. <laughs> Dr. Nation, that was awesome. I had no idea we were going to cover all that in an hour. And we still didn't even cover half the stuff I wanted to. Oh, it was so unbelievable. I love it. I learned so much and can understand and articulate so much more than I could an hour ago. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, it's been my pleasure. If there's ever anything you need from me, just let me know. I think we need a part two. <laughs> well, I want to end with a real quick story that Dr. Nation put on a course that Derby sent me to about bone graphing. And there was a suturing, little hands-on thing, and I did it. And Dr. Nation told the whole room that I should stick to driving a beer truck. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, Elvis. (laughs) At least you made it through it. I know my limitations. and uh, <laughs> You know what, Elvis, for a lab technician, you did a wonderful job. Yeah, I appreciate that. Wonderful job. Wonderful. Way to go. Thank you so much, Dr. Nation. We appreciate it. Thank you. And all that you're doing to try to make all these things just better. It's eye-opening, and I think you're doing a good thing. Yep. If we do this again in the winter, I want to do it at Barb's place. Can we do Yeah, it? no yes. kidding. Yes. <laughs> it's 58 now, y'all. Dropping. Uh, oh yeah, I think we're up to negative four, so we're warming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a heat wave here. Heat. <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Outside of the podcast, I actually have a real job. I know it's hard to believe. I get to work directly with dental offices to provide amazing smiles to patients. But don't we all? But I do it with data instead of a handpiece or a mill. I use data that most labs already have but don't know how to access it or use it. Enter iCortica. I-C-O-R-T-I-C-A. If your lab is already using Magic Touch, great, you're halfway there. If you aren't, then go get Magic Touch just so you can use iCortica. It will be worth it. Let's be honest, access to easy to understand information is the key to any sales or customer service position. Did I mention that they have bar graphs? This is exactly what iCortica does for me on a daily basis. Every morning, I wake up to an email showing me the risks and the opportunities across all of the customers. I can then dive in to see specific customer information and look at so much like sales by product, trends by category or restoration. I can see all the notes and I can even see their remake percentage. It allows me to know who I should talk to about what without having to spend hours digging into production software or making a ton of Excel spreadsheets. It's all right there. Every metric I need to be successful. So do yourself and your lab a favor and head over to icortica.com forward slash voices or send Rob Nazelle an email at rob at icortica.com and start understanding your dental offices in a way you never had before. 
Check out this episode's show notes for all of those links, and we thank you for your support of the podcast, iCortica, and I personally thank you for making my job easier. Thank you so much, Dr. Nation, for coming on our podcast and telling our whole industry a very interesting perspective of the full arch restorations. I do agree. That was amazing. It's amazing how many full arches I have done over the years without ever considering airway and sleep apnea. Like, really? We would really like to bring more clinical perspectives to the podcast, but we need your help. If you're working with a dentist or at an event with a dentist and you think they have something to offer our industry, please have them email us at info at voicesfromthebench.com. We would love to have them on. The more that we can learn from each other, the more we can help our patients together, you guys. So let's do it. That's all we got for you, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Bye. See you in Chicago. Or bye-bye, Chicago. Kind of. It was great to see you in Chicago. But it's probably the best setting out of all.